Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Becky Aikman, the author of Off the Clip, How the Making of Thelma and Louise Drove Hollywood to the Edge. Becky, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'm hoping you could start off by talking about why you wrote this book. What came about, what interested you in writing about Thelma and Louise? Well, I started off thinking about the issue that women's voices aren't being heard enough in Hollywood. And I quickly realized that if I droned on for 300 pages about such a frustrating and unchanging issue, that it would be very boring and would drive me out of my mind. What I really wanted to do was tell a fun, exciting story, too. So I decided that what I should do instead is talk about one great women's film that got made and made well and see what... I could learn from that about how it could happen more often. Um, It only took a few seconds for me to realize that movie had to be Thelma and Louise. It was a huge sensation when it came out back in 1991. And it still feels fresh today. Yeah, I remember I, after I read your book, I of course had to go back and watch Thelma and Louise again. Um, And it does. It holds up really well. But I still remember in 1991 when it came out, I was in undergraduate. I remember exactly where I was when I saw it. I remember I remember how hot Brad Pitt was. But I also remember loving both of them, like both characters, both Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis and what they were doing and the whole thing. So it was really exciting. I really enjoyed reading your book and thinking about like my memories and comparing them to sort of what it took to get this movie made. Right. I mean, it's funny that you say that you love them so much because uh, every studio but one in Hollywood rejected this script. And one of the key reasons they gave was that the women weren't likable. (laughs) Many, many women everywhere really embraced Thelma and Louise and the whole concept of women's friendship that they embody. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if you could, so you sort of walk through this making of this film and how hard it was and what happened. So I'm wondering if you could just sort of talk a little bit about that, um, the writing of Thelma and Louise and and what it was like to just even try and get the studios to um, look at this film and, and, and give it any kind of like, look at it at all and talk about it at all, or maybe think about filming it. Uh Um, well, like you, I really remember the first time I saw the movie, and I remember it blew my mind, partly because it wasn't like anything else. It was about two women, and they get to run amok. They're not just standing around in the background. Uh, Gina Davis uses this term about the parts she was being offered. She calls them good luck, honey, parts, where <laughs> the women stand around while the men have the adventures. Uh, it was so striking because it was so different. And that helps to explain why it was very, very hard 
to get a movie like this made. It wasn't the kind of thing that Hollywood viewed as what they did. And I think one of the key reasons that this made it through the system is that some of the key people involved really had no idea what they were doing. Um, (laughs) Callie Curry was the writer of the script, and that's how the whole thing began. Um, She was a complete newcomer. She had never written anything before. She was 30 years old, a college dropout, a former waitress. Her job at the time was working behind the scenes on uh, music videos, which was a really kind of scuzzy area uh, where people tried to start out in film. And she threw all of her personal frustration about her own thwarted ambitions into writing this script about women who wanted to break free from convention and express themselves. Uh, She was very naive about Hollywood. She said to me, I wasn't trying to write the kind of movie that got made. I was trying to write the movie I wanted to see. What's uh, stunning, and as you look back at the whole story, is that she wound up winning the Oscar for it. And it was the first time in 60 years that a woman writing without a male partner won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. So it was a spectacular achievement. Right. And one thing I found really interesting and what you did in the book is you told the story of Thelma and Louise, but you also sort of told the story of women in Hollywood at this time, but it it really sort of, it's still going on, right? Like some of this hasn't changed at all. And so you talked about how someone like Callie Curry or someone like um, who's who want a woman who wants to be a director or who wants to be in production has a really difficult time of doing that and getting into that. So can you talk a little bit about sort of Hollywood at that time, what was going on in the film industry and, and what kind of movies were coming out that made this even more challenging to make happen? Well, since the me too, uh, revelations have come out, it's pretty clear that Hollywood hasn't changed much from back then. When I was doing my research, I was expecting that women weren't treated especially well, and I was shocked at how bad it really was. Um, And now I think everybody's shocked at how bad Mm -hmm. it really was. Uh, Women at that time were not treated with much respect by people who ran the movie business, and they were uh, frequently demeaned and... uh, sexually assaulted as they have been now also. Um, And the end result in terms of what people got to see at the movies was that women didn't get to have the opportunities to tell stories that meant something to them. Uh, It's changed maybe a little bit back in the late eighties when this movie was being developed. uh, It was just unheard of for a movie like this to somehow get through the system and for a woman who had created a movie who had no background whatsoever to somehow get the ear of high level people in Hollywood and and get her project realized. It was uh, typical that maybe one, maybe two of the top 50 movies in a year would have a female lead. And then they were usually romantic comedies. So it was about getting a man, Uh, a woman or let alone two women uh, in the lead were considered box office poison. And uh, those kinds of movies were almost never greenlit. In the 10 years before, I can name just two or three. 
so it was an extraordinary thing for Callie Curry to even think that someone would make this movie, but she had a great deal of chutzpah and she and a friend passed the script around to anybody they could get to listen and ultimately did get the ear of some high level people in Hollywood who loved what she wrote. Right. And so you talk to, and you open up with also the role of her agent, right. And what Diane, Diane Cairns um, was, how she sort of played uh, an important role in this and sort of getting this script and getting money and getting backing for this script. So can you talk a little bit about her role and sort of what she did to get this off the ground? Yeah, she played a very key role. The other key role was when when the script was passed around, Callie and her friend uh, Amanda Temple knew a little bit a woman who worked at a low level for the director, Ridley Scott, and they showed the screenplay to her. She loved it and showed it to Ridley Scott. Now, Ridley Scott was a very high-powered director at the time, known mostly for making real big sci-fi action movies and he really did love the script and did not feel that he could direct it but thought he should try to produce it so that was the first big break that uh the story got and the second big break was that uh, callie signed with this young agent named diane cairns uh, at icm and she decided that the way to sell this baby was to uh, try to package it with Ridley Scott as the producer and a couple of big stars on board because already this script had been rejected by many, many people and studios. Um, So she knew that she needed a more high-powered approach. And luckily, um, two of the big stars at ICM were Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer. And they jumped at the chance to play these parts because they were big, substantial parts for women. They were not good luck honey parts. So they were dying to do it. So Diane packaged script with the stars, with the producer and sent it out to all the big studios on one day. That's the day when I opened the book, when she's sitting there waiting for the responses and she had very high expectations. Her phone lit up. Every line was flashing. She thought, this is it. She picked up each call and one by one people said, I love this script. And we're saying no. <laughs> and the reasons they gave were two women, box office poison. Uh, the women were not likable because they committed violence and the audience wouldn't sit still for that. People said, you know, it would be better if men rescued them at the end, more satisfying. And a few people even said, why don't you take the script and have two male stars play the parts? <laughs> So one by one, Diane got shot down over the phone and she was just devastated. And she finally realized there was only one company she hadn't heard from yet. And she decided she needed to call them right away before the scuttlebutt got out that no one had the nerve to make this movie. Now, this company uh, was run by Alan Ladd Jr. He was a major Hollywood studio head who really respected the old-style, old Hollywood movies, especially women's pictures. And he didn't understand why they had been so abandoned uh, in the post-studio era in Hollywood. Uh, so he was one of the few people who would greenlight movies with women in them. 
he had wound up at this little dinky company called Passe that had real money problems. So it wasn't anyone's first choice of a studio, but um, Diane Karen sent the script to Rebecca Pollock, who was an executive at that company, and she loved the script and spoke to Alan Ladd Jr. and convinced him to do it. But Diane Cairns was afraid that they would chicken out if she didn't get to them first. So she called them and was tremendously relieved when Rebecca Pollock said, everyone here loves it, let's do this. So it was that close that Thelma Louise would have not been made because if not for that one company, we would not be talking about it now. Right. And so there's all this drama and we you find they finally get the green light from a company. And then what's fascinating is how Ridley Scott um, tries not to direct, tries so hard to find another director. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about that sort of what like Ridley Scott and his sort of vision as producer and and how he ultimately um, came to direct the film? No one in Hollywood thought Ridley Scott was the right person to direct this movie. He himself will say he's the furthest thing from a feminist. His agent called him Mr. Macho. He himself said he didn't get these female characters. He didn't understand why they were angry and why they were acting the way he did. He just thought the script was really funny. And he also thought that it would give a director a great canvas for getting to the heart of the American West and the beauty and openness of that because the women are traveling through the American West. Now, now Ridley Scott was an Englishman, so he was a little outside the Hollywood mainstream and didn't think as much as other people in terms of what Hollywood did or didn't do. So that was one reason he was willing to take on this project in some ways. And also being an Englishman, he saw America from the outside and thought it was a beautiful opportunity to make a visually stunning film that captured America and also some aspects of America, like the, uh, the prevalence of guns and violence and the, the romance of the open road. So he found that very appealing. He knew it was not a project for him, so he immediately started looking for other directors. And this being Hollywood at that time, every single person he approached was a man. And he quickly realized that they weren't seeing this the way he did. There was one person he talked to who said to him, I don't get it. It's two bitches in a car. Um, (laughs) Other people saw it as a very small movie. It's just driving along and talking. They didn't see the scope of it that he did. So eventually Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer dropped out because there was such a long delay in trying to get someone to take this on. And Michelle Pfeiffer had lunch with Ridley Scott and said to him, I'm sorry, I can't do it, but I really think you should just direct this. You're the one person who sees it. And he said, you know what? I guess I will. So Ridley Scott decided to go ahead and become the director of what became a great feminist classic, despite the fact that he thought he didn't understand it. But the great thing about him was that he knew what he didn't know. He knew he didn't understand it. So he sat down with Callie Curry, the writer, and they carefully went through the script page by page. And he would ask her to describe why she made the choices. Why were the characters acting this way? For example, he said 
He didn't believe that women would have to listen to obscene cat calls, like the ones that a truck driver keeps uh, throwing at Selma and Louise. And Callie Curry had to explain to him, yes, this is a very common occurrence. And uh, Ridley's assistant weighed in saying, yes, it happens to all of us. And they assured him that the audience would love it if uh, Thelma and Louise turned around and blew up this trucker's truck. Women would go crazy for that. So he said, well, okay, i got to believe you. And in fact, that is possibly the scene that gets the biggest reaction in the movie. Women who've been uh, approached in this way over time seem to get a huge kick out of uh, the characters retaliating for it. So... Um, Ridley came to the project and gave it careful thought and decided to try to do it the way it was written. And another big factor that weighed into that was that he hired two very smart, outspoken female stars. And once they were on the set, they had a lot to do with keeping it real as well, speaking up about how they thought women would or would not behave. Right. I thought one thing uh, that was really, for me, really fascinating, and one thing I love that you talked about often in the book was the role of Susan Sarandon, Gina Davis, and Callie Curry in really making sure that their voices were heard. And how, and Gina Davis talks to you about how she um, went from being sort of pleasing to everyone to realizing she wanted to be more like Susan Sarandon. She wanted to sort of speak up more and, and say her mind. And so can you talk a little bit more about how those two got cast and, and sort of their role in this film and their role in sort of making these two characters, the characters who we know and most of us love. Once uh, Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer dropped out of the project, it became a sensation in Hollywood because every single working actress lobbied hard for those parts. There were so few opportunities to play a fully fleshed out role that wasn't in a romantic comedy, that wasn't standing around screaming in an action movie. Everybody wanted these parts and the studio and Ridley Scott were besieged by agents pushing their clients. Uh, some of the top contenders included Cher, who was a big star at that time. She just won the Oscar for Moonstruck. And um, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn personally lobbied very hard to play those two parts together because they wanted to work on a project together. Uh, there, there's a long, long list <laughs> that I go through in the book of people who wanted the roles and were considered for the roles. Uh, Nowhere in the lists of the files that I found at the studio were Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon mentioned, except once there was just a little note, Gina Davis, and they misspelled Gina, G-I-N-A, <laughs> instead of G-E-E-N-A. But Gina Davis had somehow got a, her hands on a copy of that screenplay, and she wanted that part so badly. So she personally lobbied, and her agent called Ridley Scott's office practically every day for a year to try to get her considered for this role. So Ridley Scott said, okay, I'll sit down and have uh, tea with her. Uh, they met and he knew that she had an image of playing sort of goofy, wacky characters in movies like Beetlejuice and uh, um, Earth Girls are Easy. She had this kooky image. But as soon as he met her, he realized that she was a very intelligent woman and had a steely quality under the surface. 
And he knew that the Thelma character had to start off as a ditzy housewife, not very thoughtful, uh, making a lot of dumb mistakes, but would evolve over the course of the story into a tougher, steelier, more decisive character. And that Louise would begin as a sort of jaded, sort of the mom figure, Thelma would listen to her, but the rules at a certain point would flip and Thelma would have to take charge. Ridley Scott saw in Gina Davis that quality, that she had the goofy ditziness, but she also had that ability to take charge. And part of it was her pursuit of this role that he saw that in her. So he wanted to cast her um, against the wishes of the studio. They felt that they could get a really big star with this script and uh, should do that for the better chances at the box office. But uh, they did bow to Ridley's... um, request. Then he moved on to Susan Sarandon, who hadn't really been on any of this either. She was a little bit older. She was 41 at the time, and Gina was 32. Those were both pretty old ages for a woman to get a leading role in a movie, believe it or not. But Ridley met with her, and he saw in her the qualities he was looking for for Louise, that she had a real toughness and an outspokenness. And um, even the fact that she was slightly older uh, gave a nice visual contrast to Gina. Gina had this smooth, buttery skin that uh, helped to show the naivete that she might have. And Susan had a little bit of crow's feet and a, more of a steely look in her eyes that uh, showed the more cynical Louise. So he felt that the audiences would immediately tell the two apart in a visual way. So once again, the studio wasn't happy about that, but uh, Al Ladd Jr. believed in giving directors their head and approved the casting of those two. Right, and and you also talk about sort of the casting of some of the other characters, the other sort of um, characters that surround them and that on the cast. And so can you talk a bit about the other people who come in and have roles that sort of really make this movie and how they sort of got cast. Most of the parts were men and Ridley Scott knew that the script made fun of the men for having many, many failings. And he felt that it was important for the portrayals to be comic so that the audience could enjoy it. So it wouldn't be too polemic and, uh, alienating to the men in the audience. So he wanted people who could be funny and who were a little different, not just glamorous male movie stars either. Um, So he looked very hard with his casting agent to find people who were real seeming. So for example, they chose Harvey Keitel for the Southern detective, a very unusual choice, but Ridley Scott had worked with him before and felt that, um, he could make that character more sympathetic, even as he hunts down the uh, two women. Um, he chose, uh, somewhat strangely, Michael Madsen mm-hmm. to be the love interest for Susan Sarandon. Ridley Scott wasn't too comfortable with um, that relationship being too romantic. And so he chose Michael Madsen, who was known mostly for playing psycho killers at that time. And <laughs> since then, he's also played a lot of psycho killers. But um, he had a kind of dangerous quality that would rough up that character and make the romance not too sticky sweet. Um, 
that would show the downside of that romance. Uh, so Michael Madsen was brought in to read for the part of the rapist and said he didn't want to play that part. He was sick of those parts. He wanted this romantic part. Uh, so they took a chance and cast him. The biggest casting coup <laughs> of the film is Brad Pitt as J.D., the sexy hitchhiker who has a wild night in a motel with Thelma. This was the very first movie that Brad Pitt was cast in, so it was quite a find. The production didn't have much money, so they were reading all unknowns for this rather small part. Luckily, I got to see the audition tapes for these people, and they are a hoot. But many, many of them, and I named them in the book, went on to become extremely big stars in Hollywood. So they had quite a list of people who tried for this part. But um, I think it's one of many examples in this film where there was a critical mass of women who could make decisions. Uh, The writer, the producer, the woman at the studio, um, and the two stars, not just one, but two of them. So they had a lot of clout. And I think you can credit Gina Davis for discovering Brad Pitt and making him a star because she had an uncanny ability to understand what might appeal to the ladies out there. She read at the auditions with the finalists for JD, the hitchhiker. And um, I saw them all and they all played kind of dangerous bad boys. But when Brad Pitt came in, Gina Davis kept looking at him and became so flustered that she forgot her lines, completely bollocked up his audition and apologized to him as he left. After he left, the casting people and Ridley Scott were talking about the other finalists clearly preferring them. And Gina Davis debated for a minute, should she speak up, and finally decided she just had to. She said, hello, the blonde one. (laughs) And Ridley Scott later said he did see her face redden up when he walked into the room and realized he had something. So Gina understood what women would like. Um, Clearly she was right. Um, I think having seen the tapes, I know all of the guys played it as kind of a dangerous bad boy, kind of a James Dean type. But Brad Pitt played it that way, but also he was very, very polite. I think Gina understood that that would appeal to women, a dangerous bad boy who has manners. Um, And also, of course, she loved the way he looked. So I do think that the sex scene they share, which if you've seen the outtakes, which no one really has um, outside a small circle, is one of the steamiest love scenes ever filmed. They had to trim it a lot because it just took over the movie too much. Uh, But that sex scene made Brad Pitt a star. And I think part of it is it's a very unusual love scene in that it's one of the few, I think, ever shot from a woman's point of view. Uh, Ridley Scott personally spritzed Evian water over Brad Pitt's torso so it would glow perfectly in the light. And he filmed personally with a handheld camera uh, much of the scene from Thelma's point of view, glorifying the beauty of Brad Pitt. And when they showed Gina Davis's face, it showed pure, unadulterated lust. And I think that scene taught the audience to look at Brad Pitt that way. And they've looked at him that way ever since. 
Right. Yeah. No, I was interesting too because when I read in your book about like this, this that how much they had to cut out of that scene, then when I rewatched it, I was like, I really wonder what this scene looks like uncut and unedited. Well, it's pretty wild. I bet. And I also love the little part where Gina Davis was on a plane years later with um, George Clooney, um, who was also one of those three that um, could have been chosen instead of Brad Pitt. And and because Gina had no memory of who the other ones were. That's right. Because they were all unknowns. She had no idea who these guys were because he wasn't really George Clooney yet. So it was many, many years later, just shortly before I interviewed her, that she was on a plane with him. And he said, oh, I'm so mad at that Brad Pitt that he got that part. And Gina said, what part are you talking about? And he said, you know, where I read with you, with Thelma Louise. (laughs) And uh, she had not made the connection until then. Exactly. And yeah, so and watching him just like the politeness. Also, Michael Madsen was really well did did a really great job as the sort of leading man that um, had a nice feel. The the other talk also about um, Chris McDonald and his sort of how how Gina got him to be involved, but he is just spot on in that role and, and was really great. Can you talk a little bit about him and the cast, his casting? Yes. He stood out also in a tremendous way. He was the actor who played the part of Daryl Thelma's doofus of a husband, (laughs) Uh, his polyester suits and his hideous male jewelry and his ridiculous Waft hair. He was a real narcissist and a very domineering and not too bright husband to Thelma. Uh, it was especially important to Ridley Scott that this character be played for humor. And uh, Chris McDonald went into his interview and nailed it completely. He went in a polyester suit and he had some goofy gold necklace that said number one on it, which Ridley asked him to wear in the film, and also he coughed his hair in this elaborate way that uh, Ridley asked him to uh, uh, replicate also on on set. Um, And there's a scene where he's fixing his hair, and you can just see he's so full of himself, you want to snack him. (laughs) Um, He had a great toolbox of comic moves that made some of the funniest moments in the movie for example, he answers the door when the police come to question him. And because his wife is away, the house is just a wreck, beer bottles everywhere, pizza boxes on the floor. And he steps on the pizza in the pizza box when he becomes flustered in his ugly sort of shower shoes he's wearing. Uh, so he does a lot of moments like that and, and really does them with perfect comic timing and makes that character work. However, he was grateful to Ridley Scott because um, when things get real at the end of the movie and Selma's in serious trouble, Ridley Scott went back and did one shot of Daryl as he's realizing what has happened and the look on his face is no longer funny. It's when he realizes that the seriousness of what's happened and that he has lost his wife who he did love in his self-absorbed way. It's a, it's a beautiful shot. And uh, one of the many grace notes of the movie that makes it bigger and more serious than just a silly romp through the desert. 
So another thing that I found really interesting in, in thinking about this movie and the role that this movie has sort of played in Hollywood history and as well in sort of making some kind of inroads and changes is, so you talk also a lot about the the actual filming, right? So we get Ridley Scott into place, we get um, the actors into place, and then you look at sort of the filming. And one of the things I found interesting was that at that time, the writers were not really allowed on the set, right? The, or they, you know, necessarily allowed on the set. And that Callie really wanted to be a part of this film as it moved forward. She didn't want to just write it and let it go. And so can you talk a little bit about her role throughout the film and how she, you know, when the film was being, when it was being filmed and, and through that, what she sort of brought to the movie? She wrote the script so much from the heart that it was hard for her to let it go. So when the filming was going on, she was invited to the set twice and went, and she found it so frustrating and difficult that she couldn't control every decision that was being made. So her relationship with Ridley got rocky during that period, and he felt like he had a small budget, he had a limited time, he had a plan of how to film it, he didn't really want to stand around debating. She felt like this was her baby, uh, she wanted input still. So there was friction there. If you ask me, the friction was productive. I think the movie benefits from it. I think Ridley did make some great directing choices. And a couple of the things that he changed from the script do work. I think he did a couple of things that I might agree with her. He shouldn't have done the way he did. But overall, I think that friction helps to give some of the tension to the movie that is crucial to its essence. And also she had good stand-ins in Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon because mm-hmm. they were making no guff throughout <laughs> this. Uh, there was one day when uh, Ridley Scott came up to Gina Davis and said, okay, this is a day when Thelma is feeling really great and really free and you're driving along in the car and why don't you just take off your top and wave it around? So Gina being the less forthcoming of the two stars went to tell Susan Sarandon, what do I do? Ridley asked me to do this. It doesn't seem appropriate. Uh, Susan marched right over to him and said, Ridley, this is not happening. Uh, So the two of them together had enough clout to make decisions like that and have him listen so that was good. I think we all agree. Women, mm-hmm. when they're feeling really good, do not tend to take off their car. No. They're talking yeah. the <laughs> drive around with everyone seeing them. So <laughs> I think the women made the right call there. I don't blame Ridley for asking, right. but uh, I give him some credit for giving in. So there were a lot of moments like that where having a critical mass of women involved just helped to keep it as one of the movies where women see it and go, yeah, that's how we act. And one of the things that when I first saw this film and it stays sort of true, I think, even, you know, almost 30 years later, is that and we sometimes I think sometimes it's forgotten about, but it's so important is that rape scene. Right. And you talk a bit about that and filming it and how that was handled. And I think it could have been handled that, you know, in many different ways, especially during that time period. But they do 
it's handled so well and it's done so well. And so can you talk a little bit about that and the filming of that and sort of what that meant for the tone of this film and and moving, you know, and, and the because it was filmed right at the beginning, wasn't it right? It was one of the first it scenes was. that was so can you talk a bit about that and, and how that sort of set a tone for this, the film moving forward? Well, when you say the tone of the film, that's the key to your question. Uh, one of the unusual aspects of this film is that the tone flips so completely so many times. It starts off with two gals heading out on a fun weekend and getting drunk and having a good time. And it seems like it could be like a Tina Fey, Amy Poehler movie. Then mm-hmm. suddenly this vicious attempted rape occurs and the tone completely changes into something else. And throughout the whole movie, there are a lot of shifts like that because this script is hilarious in places. And there's a lot of humor, even when things are serious, but there are some truly serious underpinnings about issues like rape and justice and uh, the rights of women. So getting that tone right, I think was one of the big challenges and it's easy to see how it could have gone off the rails. Uh, I'm not expert enough maybe to even understand why they were able to shift so suddenly and and have it still work. I know audiences were shocked at the rape scene uh, who hadn't heard about it in advance. That scene was very tough for them to play. Many actors did not want that part of the rapist because um, he was a very ugly and unappealing character. And the actor who played the role, Timothy Carhart, uh, said it took a huge toll on him uh, to have to go to such an ugly place. Uh, The the scene was filmed in the middle of the night because it took that long to set up the lights and be ready and everything, so everyone was exhausted. And Gina Davis has quite an ability to put herself into a situation as if it's really happening. And that freaked Timothy Carhart out also because she just looked terrified and so genuinely upset. Uh, After the filming of it was over, the two of them parted in almost a hostile way because um, it it was just hard to switch back to being pleasant and open after that. Um, But it is an essential scene to the movie. And, after seeing the first rushes from it, um, Ridley Scott decided that it had to be harsher than it was because it sets the rest of the story into motion. So they went back and actually did retakes on it that made it a little more violent later in the production. Um, because without that, there was already so much criticism. Wow, these women are running amok and are violent. So you needed that scene to justify what the lead characters were doing from then on. Right. And so, and throughout the book, you, you sort of talk about the different ways in the different sort of different key scenes and filming. And so can you talk a little bit then about, so after they'd filmed that and filmed some of the interior, they ended up going out in and filming, um, out, you know, doing all the work outside sort of on the road. And so can you talk a little bit about that filming and and where that was done and what that sort of looked like for them? Because they were on a strict time schedule and budget as well. Yes, it was a very strict time schedule. And luckily Ridley Scott had started his career in commercials where he'd made some thousand commercials where you have one day to shoot it and it has to be visually spectacular and really grab people. So he had that ability to work fast. And he also had 
a great artistic visual sense because he had studied art before he became a director and he actually draws quite well and I was fortunate that he allowed us to use a couple of his hand-drawn storyboards in the illustrations in the book so people can see them. Uh, the selection of the locations was one of the most important pre-planning aspects of the film. They scouted a lot of parts of the country and ultimately for budgetary reasons had to film in the Central Valley of California for the scenes that were the American Plains and had to film in uh, some state and national parks in Utah to uh, show the desert scenes and uh, the final scene that's supposed to be in Grand Canyon. Um, these spectacular settings, I think, helped to make the film a classic because uh, they do make it bigger and grander. And especially a great deal of attention was given to choosing the setting for the final scene, uh, the most controversial and polarizing scene in the movie. Ridley Scott and others knew that if they were going to sell that crazy ending, uh, it couldn't just be these two women have a depressing, sad car accident. It had to be a little bit symbolic. It had to be... Uh, expressing the idea that these women were escaping a world that was too small to contain them. And it, the setting had to have a kind of mythic grandeur so that the audience would feel that Thelma and Louise were entering into the realm of myth, not just crashing their car. <laughs> uh, so uh, there was a lot of attention given to that final scene for that reason. And all the scenes leading up to it in the, in the Red Rock West was, uh, very beautiful lighting and beautiful uh, rock formations in the background. So there's a lot to look at. It makes you feel that they're entering a magical place that's not the same reality as where they began. Right. And, and that final scene was really on a tight budget as well. They had three cars that they and they were hoping that they could make this scene work. Um, so can you just sort of talk a little bit about that filming of that final scene? Yes, they had five cars all together and they were tricked out in different ways. Some had different parts of the missing so that they could mount cameras on the front or the back or the side so they could do close ups of the women as they were actually driving. There was no budget for special effects, so everything is real. And the car going off the cliff had to be real, too. Uh, they devised a scheme where uh, the car would be emptied of anything with any weight, including the engine, and attached to a cable. And there was a pulley right at the edge of the cliff, and the cable went through that to a big truck that pulled the car at a high speed, and they built a ramp. So it would go off at an upward angle. That was so key. If the car just went to the edge and went plop straight down, it would not have that mythic quality they were looking for and would not feel uplifting. So they needed the car to go upwards into the air and really fly. So they built a ramp and they had fingers crossed that this whole jerry-rigged system would work. The first car that they tried went up to the edge sort of went in a really depressing way, just sort of went straight down to the bottom of the canyon. Um, the second car, luckily, it went off going nicely up in the air, and they were able to stop there and use that shot. In fact, the cover of my book shows the car going through yep. the air. And some people think that that's a drawing that 
we did. But in fact, that is a photograph of the car flying out over the canyon. Yes. And, uh, you couldn't really do better with special effects. <laughs> no, it looks great. And so you walk through sort of, you know, how we get to this film, how this film gets made, and then you um, finish off with like sort of looking at what happens after it gets made. And so it wasn't right away. It wasn't just all excitement about the film. Um, you talk a bit about how they test screen it and how um, the ending was Ridley Scott had changed the ending a bit and that did not go over well with sort of the test screening. So can you talk a little bit about what happens with the test screening and once it comes out? Yes, the test, the first test screening was an absolute disaster. The audience hated the movie and they hated the ending. Um, when it started, they were laughing and seemed to be into it, but then the tone just shifted and the comment cars were really hostile. Afterwards, all the filmmakers gathered over a steak dinner and they just wanted to kill themselves. Um, deciding what to do. They wanted to just rip it apart, take out whole sections, redo whole sections. They didn't know what to do. But um, Alan Ladd Jr. and Rebecca Pollock from the uh, studio said, let's remember why we did this movie in the first place, what made it special in the first place. Let's not mess with the intention here. Um, let's try to go more strongly with the intention." So there had been one shot that had been added to the final scene and softened it a little bit. Um, they decided to snip just that one shot. It was really small and make the ending stronger. So the next night they did a test screening and the audience went crazy. They loved the film and some said they hated the ending, but they loved the film. Others said they loved the ending too. I think everyone knew it was the ending that had to be. Otherwise it would feel like a cop out. So they stuck with it, and from then on, uh, the test screenings were very, very positive. And so you sort of end the book, too, by sort of looking at what happened to some of these actors and directors and people who were part of this film and, and sort of what this film has meant for Hollywood. And like we talked about at the beginning, what has changed, but so how much has sort of stayed the same in Hollywood um, after even after Thelma and Louise was made. So I don't know if there's anything you want to mention about sort of those, those final take takeaways that you sort of give us about the, the making of this film and its role in Hollywood. Well, I looked first at the individuals who were involved in the film. And then I looked at the bigger picture and um, the film has become quite legendary in Hollywood. Many, many people, including people who were too scared to make it, say, oh, it's one of my favorite films. Um, many of the men involved in the film went on to great glory. Brad Pitt, I think we've all heard of him by now. Ridley Scott went on to many other things, winning Oscars. Um, the women got a lot of prestige from it, but it was a lot harder for them to get work uh, than it was for the men. Uh, Gina Davis remained a star for a couple of years and then her career kind of fell off a cliff. Um, Susan Sarandon continues to work regularly, but her strategy has been not to try to do big blockbuster movies, but to do smaller independent films. She'll take a smaller part in a big film sometimes. And so she's kept working steadily because of that, but it's nothing like Brad Pitt's career. And these two women are the ones who did carry the movie. Um, 
in general, I look at a lot of aspects of women's roles in Hollywood. I mean, very quickly, it's only one chapter. It's not like the depressing book I could have written. <laughs> about it. Um, but uh, the statistics are quite telling. Less than a third of speaking parts in movies today are played by women. And that statistic has remained steady over the last few decades. Uh, less than 10% of the major movies are directed by women. That's also stayed pretty steady. Um, usually it's less than 20% of leading characters are women. Uh, not that many women, more women get to write movies than direct movies, a little bit more, but it's still a very small number. So it hasn't changed much. My personal opinion is that now the good luck honey parts get to be a little feistier, like the girlfriend gets to tell off the bad guy uh, more often or uh, gets to do some action, but it's still the guy who rescues her in the end often. And we've had some very, very successful movies carried by women like Wonder Woman, uh, like Gravity with Sandra Bullock, uh, like Bridesmaids. And every time it happens, everyone said, oh, it was a sleeper hit. Who knew? <laughs> but there is, in fact, a pent-up demand out there for people, not just women, but men, too, to see stories that aren't the same old stories. Uh, so I think one advantage of opening up Hollywood opportunities for more people is that we'd get to see more fresh and original films, like Thelma and Louise. It's, it's just not like other movies that came before it, and people responded to the fact that they were seeing something new and exciting. So I wish that uh, that lesson could be taken more to heart and that we'd see more movies that are mind-blowing and you go, wow, I didn't know that would happen. <laughs> exactly. Um, so we've been talking a while. I don't know if there's anything you're working on right now that you want to share or promote. No, I haven't chosen what my next project will be yet. So I'm working on selecting one. With nonfiction, choosing your subject is so key because I don't get to make things up. It has to be a story that is great and that doesn't need much burnishing to make it really flow. This story, I think, completely worked because it was a bunch of underdogs. They're going up against a stacked system. They go through many machinations that are quite fascinating along the way, and, and then they triumph in the end. So... It's a great plot, a great story, and it's important to me in choosing um, a nonfiction subject that I have something where when everything in the story is absolutely real and absolutely happened, it still makes for a good read for the reader. Yeah. And so, yes. And again, so it's been wonderful talking to you. This is Becky Aikman. Like your book is really great for not only Thelma and Louise fans, but also people interested in film and feminism and sort of history and, and sort of Americana as well. Um, again, Becky Aikman, the author of Off the Cliff, How the Making of Thelma and Louise Drove Hollywood to the Edge. And I'm Rebecca Buchanan here with New Books Network, uh, New Books and Popular Culture. And her book just came out in paperback, so you can get it in paperback as well as hardcover if you'd like. Becky, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>